before we get to Psalms, uh, we have one last uh, sermon in the book of Acts. So I hope you found Acts chapter 1. Uh, today's sermon is going to be a little different than what we normally do. Typically, we want to take a passage of Scripture and, and walk through it expositionally. Uh, but we've done that over the last two years. Uh, we've walked through the book of Acts section by section. Uh, but before we leave Acts, I just want to pause and look back on the whole book. And uh, to get us started, I'd just like to read for us the first 11 verses of Acts 1 again as a launching point uh, to consider uh, this book that we've been in. So if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The Holy Spirit says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Well, when we began to walk through the book of Acts, my prayer is that our church would never be the same. My prayer has been that the stories that we've heard uh, would not just be something that we understand or, or hear, but that, that these stories would shape us as a church, uh, that as a result of our time in Acts, we would be more faithful to Christ, more faithful to his mission to fill the earth with his glory by filling the earth with people who know him and are blessed by him and who reflect him. And what we saw last week as we looked at the last passage of Acts is that that's what Luke wants for us too. Luke left Acts open-ended. And this shows us that the story is not over. The story continues. The resurrected and ascended King Jesus is inviting you and me to enter in to the story that he is still writing. And so today, I'd like us to revisit seven truths from Acts 
that we must remember if we are to enter in to this story that God is writing. Uh, you may have seen this week, I posted a picture online of this book, uh, The Mission of the Triune God by Patrick Schreiner. It's a theology of Acts. And uh, he, in his book, structures his book around seven major uh, theological themes of Acts. And uh, to sum up the major truths of Acts, my sermon this morning is going to follow his basic outline, this, these seven themes. And uh, you can boil them down simply into seven single words. Father, Christ, Spirit, Word, Salvation, Church, Witness. Again, Father, Christ, Spirit, Word, Salvation, Church, Witness. But what's important is not just that these seven themes are there in the book of Acts, uh, but how they're all connected to one another. God the Father orchestrates the plan. And then the resurrected and ascended Christ executes that plan from heaven. Uh, The Holy Spirit then empowers that plan on earth. And the plan is carried forward as the word multiplies, which then leads to salvation coming to all people. That forms the church. And then they go as witnesses to the end of the earth, proclaiming the gospel. Father, Christ, Spirit, Word, Salvation, Church, Witness. Well, based on these seven themes, I want to remind you of seven truths that we've already seen in the book of Acts. Themes that I want to make sure that we remember and that we never forget. My prayer is that these truths would increasingly shape our church as we seek to enter into the story that God is still writing. So truth number one, the Father authored an unstoppable plan. The Father authored an unstoppable plan. Over and over in Acts, we've seen the sovereignty of God on display. Even in the opening passage that we just read in verse 7, we heard Jesus describe times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his authority. And throughout Acts, we've also seen the sovereignty of God and how scriptures that were written long ago were fulfilled in the time of the apostles, showing that the events of their day were part of God's sovereign plan. And as the sovereignty of God is put on display in the book of Acts, we see uh, the apostles, the disciples in the book of Acts responding in a couple of ways to the sovereignty of God. First of all, the unstoppable plan of God serves as a warning. In Acts 5, the Jewish council was trying to figure out, what are we going to do with these Christians who won't shut up about this Jesus? Well, but in the midst of their conversation, wise old Gamaliel stands up, And in Acts 5, 38 and 39, he says, If this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And we see in his warning how foolish it is to wring our hands over the plans of man. If it's not God's will... We don't have to worry about it, because it's not going to happen. And if it is God's will, we don't have to worry about it, 
Because God made it happen. You know, many people ruin their lives trying to oppose God's sovereign plan. Some live in bitterness about things that happened in the past. Some live in despair that things are not going their way now. Some live in fear of things that might happen to them in the future. But all of these stem from not trusting that the sovereign God knows what he is doing. God's plan is unstoppable and God's plan is good. Instead of that, uh, the unstoppable plan ought to encourage us as it did the early disciples. Not only is it a warning, it's also an encouragement. And we see that, for instance, in Acts 4. Peter and John had been arrested for preaching the resurrection. And when they were released, they went back to their church. And together they prayed to the sovereign Lord. They recounted how Jesus' suffering was all according to the plan. And that led to them to turn to God in the face of their own suffering. Well, likewise, we can look at the apostles' suffering and see how that was all according to God's plan. And that can lead us to turn to God in the midst of our own suffering. God's plan does not guarantee that things will always go our way. God's plan may involve pain. God's plan may even involve our death. But God's plan will lead to his glory. And God's plan ultimately is for our good. And nothing will stop God from carrying out that plan for his glory and our good. The Father authored an unstoppable plan. Second truth. Jesus lives, reigns, and works. Jesus lives, reigns, and works. The Father authors the plan. The Son executes the plan. In Acts, Jesus is alive. From the first verses, we see this. Uh, He is not, after his crucifixion, just a, a dead figure that people are looking back on fondly. He is alive. He is physically there. He's demonstrating that he is physically alive. He's touchable. He's visible. He's audible. He's eating and drinking. Jesus is alive. Uh, We read in Acts 1-1 that Luke's first book, the Gospel of Luke, was about what Jesus began to do. And Acts, therefore, is about what Jesus continued to do after his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus uh, not only takes prominent place in these opening uh, verses where Jesus is alive with his disciples before his ascension, the resurrection is the center of the message proclaimed in the book of Acts. Uh, Right here in Acts 1, Jesus' apostles witnessed him risen from the dead, and they were as witnesses of the physically resurrected Jesus than to go and testify to what they had seen and heard. And we saw that that was the center of the message of the apostles all the way to the end of Acts, even all throughout Paul's trial. He was on trial because of his hope in the resurrection. The fact that Jesus is alive is the center of the proclamation of the gospel. But Jesus' work in Acts continues beyond his resurrection. It's not just that he rose 
and then his apostles just go do the work of telling, Jesus rose and he continues to work even as he is ascended to heaven. So uh, flip over to Acts 2 and verses 32 and 33. Peter explains after Jesus has already ascended to heaven, he explains on the day of Pentecost what's going on. He says, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And so what Peter describes is this picture of Jesus who, is, who has been resurrected and exalted to the right hand of God and is presently reigning from heaven. As Jesus sits exalted in heaven, he's not a passive spectator. He is an active participant. He is an active ruler over the plan. And we see Jesus' activity his continued activity throughout the book of Acts. In Acts 1, he chose Matthias to be the 12th apostle. In Acts 2, as we just read, he sent the Holy Spirit to empower the proclamation of the gospel. In Acts 4, he empowered the healings that testified to the truth of the gospel. In Acts 7, Jesus stood for Stephen as he was martyred and received him into heaven. In Acts 9, Jesus appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus and called him as a witness. In Acts 12, he brought Peter out of prison. In Acts 18, Jesus appeared to Paul in Corinth, encouraging him to persevere. And in Acts 23, he appeared to Paul in Jerusalem, promising him that he would testify about Jesus in Rome. Jesus is active throughout the book of Acts, and that same Jesus is alive and reigning and working actively today. Because Jesus is alive and reigning and working today, you can call on his name and be saved. Jesus is saving, present tense, today. You can be free from the sin that you are struggling with because Jesus is active and reigning and working today. You can have eternal and abundant life forever with him because Jesus is alive today and reigning and active. And no matter who you are or where you're from, if you turn from sin and turn to Jesus, he will save you because he is alive. And he is reigning. And he is still at work. He is alive and therefore he is interceding on our behalf. He is alive and therefore he is advocating for us. Present tense. Jesus did not stop his work when he rose from the dead. He did not stop his work when he ascended to heaven. He is presently alive and reigning and active. And because of that, we can have confidence in him today. Jesus lives reigns and works number three the holy spirit gives power to do god's will the holy spirit gives power to do god's will so the father authors the plan the son executes the plan and he does so by sending the holy spirit to his disciples so in Acts 1.8, which we just read, we saw how Jesus promised his disciples that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit would come upon them. Uh, but the Holy Spirit is not a power to harness. The Holy Spirit is a person who gives power. 
Jesus does not promise power for us to use to do whatever we want to do. Jesus promised a person who empowers us to do what he wants to do. The Holy Spirit gives power not to do our will. The Holy Spirit gives power to do God's will. And throughout Acts, we saw how the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus' disciples to do God's will. Beginning at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit empowered the church in Jerusalem to proclaim the mighty works of God. In Acts 6, the seven men who serve as kind of prototypes of deacons, they were empowered for their ministry by the Holy Spirit. And one of those seven men, Stephen, uh, the Holy Spirit empowered to testify to Jesus all the way to the point of death. The Spirit strengthened the early churches. The Spirit empowered Peter to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. The Spirit directed all of Paul's missionary journeys. The Holy Spirit empowered the disciples to do God's will. And if you are in Christ, you have received the same Holy Spirit. And He will empower you to do the will of God. You know, as followers of Jesus, Jesus has called us to do a lot of hard things. He's called us to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's called us to love our neighbor as ourselves. He's called us to proclaim the gospel. He's called us to make disciples. He's called us to show the same kind of love that he showed us in dying for us. But Jesus does not ask us to do anything that he does not also give us the power to do in the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 14, 15, and 16, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's hard. Verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The Holy Spirit empowers us to do the will of God. So as we work as we sweat, as we strive to be faithful to Jesus and faithful to his mission, we can be encouraged by the fact that Jesus has given us the fullness of God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit to empower our obedience. The Holy Spirit gives power to do God's will. Number four, the word will triumph when the word is central. The word will triumph when the word is central. The father authors the plan. The son executes the plan. He does so by sending the Holy Spirit to his disciples on earth. And that plan moves forward as the word spreads and triumphs. Even from the beginning of Acts, we see the centrality of the word. The first thing we see Jesus doing in Acts is speaking. Then he gives his witnesses an assignment of speaking. There is a message that Jesus wants to spread to the nations. And throughout Acts, the plan of God unfolds and the mission of God advances as the word almost takes on a life of its own and spreads and triumphs. And the church in Jerusalem, the number of disciples multiplied as the word of God increased. Later, even as 
apostles like James were killed, the word of God increased and multiplied. The Gentiles began to believe in Jesus as the word of the Lord spread throughout their regions. The local economy of the town of Ephesus was turned upside down. Why? Because the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Paul told the Ephesian elders that the word of God's grace was able to build up their church. When the word of God is central, disciples are made. When the word of God is central, churches are built up. When the word of God is central, communities are transformed. And we will not fulfill our mission if we rely on anything other than the word of God to do the work of God. Exciting programs, engaging events, fun activities. None of these things are wrong. But they are not sufficient to carry out our mission. If we want to see children come to know Jesus, we've got to give them the word. If we want teenagers to have any chance of making it after graduation, we've got to give them the word. If we want our church to be healthy, thriving, a life-giving community, we've got to have the word at the center. We've got to have a greater hunger for the word than for entertainment. We've got to love speaking the word to each other more than we love speaking about politics. We've got to not assume that we know what the Bible says. We've got to open up the Bible and open up our minds underneath the authority of Scripture and let Scripture renew our minds and teach us and inform us and rebuke us and shape us and train us to be more like Christ. If we want to see Erath County turned upside down, We can't just be a church that does cool things. If we want to see Erath County changed for the kingdom of God, we can't just even be a church that values preaching. We need to be a church that our members are speaking the truth of the word of God and speaking that truth in love. Uh, We need to be a church where our members are not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And when the word is central, the word will triumph. The word will triumph when the word is central. Number five, salvation can transform anyone. Salvation can transform anyone. So the father authors the plan. The son executes the plan. He does so by sending the Holy Spirit. And the plan moves forward as the word triumphs. And when that word is received and believed, a person is saved. And that salvation transforms people from every nation. Uh, I, want, I want you to see two aspects of this. First, anyone can be saved by the gospel. Anyone can be saved by the gospel. In Acts 2, in the very first sermon of Acts... On the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and declares, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will 
be saved. Then, as Acts progresses, one by one, different religious and cultural and ethnic barriers are broken as more and more people are saved by this gospel. Jews, and then Samaritans, and then God-fearers, and then Gentiles, and on and on and on it spreads until we come to Acts 28, and the gospel comes to Rome, the center and hub of the known world, where from there, the gospel can go to the very ends of the earth. As Peter says in Acts 10, 34 and 35, God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Anyone can be saved by the gospel. But there's a second aspect of this that I think Acts shows us powerfully, and that is no one is saved by the gospel without being transformed by the gospel. No one is saved by the gospel without also being transformed by the gospel. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people are saved, and immediately we see their whole lifestyle changes. When Saul was saved, not only did he eventually start going by Paul, uh, but he starts proclaiming the name of Jesus that he once persecuted. He is rejected by people to whom he once belonged, and he then is accepted by the church that he once sought to destroy. Uh, when the gospel came to Philippi, Lydia started showing generosity. A, a fortune teller's owners lost their source of income. Uh, when the gospel came to Ephesus, people changed their lifestyles so much that a riot broke out in protest. No one is saved by the gospel who is not also transformed by the gospel. Wherever the gospel saves, the gospel transforms and changes a person's life. And so, uh, there's a sobering aspect to this. If someone claims to believe the gospel but they have not been transformed by the gospel, then we should not assume that they're saved. But that shouldn't make us lose heart. Because anyone can be saved by the gospel. Anyone can be transformed, even those who think they already are saved and aren't. Anyone, including those people, can be saved. You know, we carry out our mission as a church, in a community that is filled with people who claim to believe in Jesus, but haven't actually been changed by him. And it can be really discouraging, and it can be really challenging to try and be witnesses and testify to the gospel uh, to an audience that thinks they've already got it, even though their lives have never been changed by Jesus. But we don't have to lose heart. Because the gospel can save anyone. The gospel can transform anyone. Salvation can transform anyone. Number six. The local church is essential to the mission. The local church is essential to the mission. So the father authors the plan. The Son executes the plan from heaven in his exalted state. 
He does so by sending the Holy Spirit to earth to empower the disciples. The plan moves forward as the word triumphs. When that word is believed, salvation transforms people. And when people are saved, a church is formed. We see this as early as Pentecost. As soon as those 3,000 people are saved and receive the gospel, they are baptized and added to the church. That church then devotes themselves to building one another up through fellowship around the word of God. And to continuing to witness together in their community. In Acts 6, when the church gets stronger, the number of disciples multiplies. Even after the church in Jerusalem is scattered across Judea and Samaria because of persecution, they form local churches that build one another up and multiply disciples. It was a local church in Antioch that sent Paul on his missionary journeys. And throughout Paul's missionary journeys, we saw that his mission was not complete when converts were made. He took them and assembled them into churches. He appointed elders for these flocks. And he strengthened and encouraged them to press on in the mission. In Acts 20, when Paul was saying farewell to the elders of the church in Ephesus... He wept, pleading with them to give themselves to caring for their local church, the very flock of God purchased with his own blood. The local church is essential to the mission. And God's mission, again, is to fill the earth with his glory by filling the earth with people who know him, who are blessed by him, and who reflect him. You know, the more I study and reflect on the book of Acts and I see what God does through the local church, the more I am convinced that it is right for us to have a healthy desire for healthy church growth. Now, even as I say that, I need to admit to you, I am very reluctant to say that. Because I have seen so many churches compromise the word of God in the name of church growth. Uh, Not only seen it from a distance, but I've seen it up close and personal and painfully so. How churches compromise on the word of God for the sake of church growth. And so I tend to have a negative association with even the term church growth growth. But just like an unhealthy desire for church growth can lead to compromise, I'm seeing in scripture and in my own heart that an unhealthy distaste for church growth can also lead to compromise. If Jesus was telling the truth when he said that the fields are white for harvest, And if Jesus was telling the truth and really meant it when he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, then we should want more people to hear the gospel. We should want the number of people who believe the gospel to increase. We should want the number of people who are baptized to increase. 
We should want more people to join our church. We should want more people to be sanctified, more people to build up local churches, more people to go on mission. And if all that's happening, then most likely a local church is growing. Uh, and so it's, it's right for us to have a healthy desire for healthy church growth as long as we remember a few things. First, faithfulness to Christ should be our goal, not numerical growth. Faithfulness to Christ should be our goal, not numerical growth. When we get the cart before the horse, that's when we cease to be faithful to Christ. A second thing we need to remember is that a lack of numerical growth is not necessarily a sign of a lack of church health. We are promised that the kingdom will grow, but we're not promised that our individual local church will grow. And then third, focusing on church health is never the enemy of healthy church growth. Focusing on church health is never the enemy of healthy church growth. Uh, Some would say that Focusing internally uh, is the enemy of focusing externally, and, and Acts would show us that that's just not the case. In Acts, the disciples multiplied not because churches stopped focus, focusing internally. Disciples multiplied because the churches were building one another up in the Word. They were being strengthened by the gospel. And the healthier that the churches got, the more they were multiplying disciples. Uh, And and so to that end, let me give one more plug for tonight's family meeting. Because we're going to come together as a local church tonight and talk really practically about a couple of things. One, we're going to talk about how we are going to carry out God's mission as a church by proclaiming the gospel through a ministry called Power Up Clubs this summer. Uh, And so we are going to be about reaching people with the gospel, making Jesus known in in hope and in prayer that more people would receive the gospel, believe it, and become disciples of Jesus. We're going to do that tonight. But also, we're going to talk about how we can strengthen our church in, with a tool known as a constitution and bylaws. And listen, I, I understand the, when, when I hear the word constitution and bylaws, there's a little part of me that just immediately takes a nap. I, I get it. The word bylaw is like the least inspiring word when it comes. I mean, you don't think about an exciting mission being a part of something bigger than myself and bylaw in the same kind of context. But what I want you to see is that when we're talking about how we can be a healthy church, how we can apply the principles of Scripture in the way that we function together, we are not talking something that, talking about something that's separate from our mission. We are talking about something that's critical to our mission. We're talking about, for instance, say we go out and we make disciples and people believe, how do we bring them into the fold? How do we help them grow in Christ's likeness? That's the kind of thing that we're talking about, and those are essential to our mission. Growing stronger is essential to reaching more people. God is on a mission to fill the earth with his glory, by filling the earth with people who know him, who are blessed by him, and who reflect him. And the local church is essential to that mission. Finally, proclaiming the gospel must be a guiding focus. 
proclaiming the gospel must be a guiding focus. The Father authors the plan. The Son executes the plan from His exalted position from heaven, and He does so by sending the Holy Spirit to earth to empower the disciples. The plan moves forward as the Word triumphs. When that Word is believed, salvation transforms people, and when people are saved, they come together and form a church. And then that church focuses on the mission to proclaim the gospel to the end of the earth. From the beginning of Acts, Jesus tells his disciples, you will be my witnesses. Everything they did and everything they said was to point people to the truth of the gospel. And then the Spirit came and immediately they began to proclaim. And that ministry of proclamation then becomes a guiding focus for the church. In Acts 4, when the religious liberty of the church in Jerusalem was threatened, they didn't fear. They didn't fight. They focused on God and his mission, and they got on their knees and prayed for boldness to continue to proclaim the gospel. When Paul and Barnabas couldn't come to an agreement, when Paul had to figure out whether or not he was going to circumcise Timothy and make these hard decisions— It was a focus on what was best for the sake of the gospel that guided the decisions that needed to be made. Uh, When Paul was making decisions about which Jewish feasts to observe and whether to engage in temple worship, he made his decisions for the sake of the gospel. When Paul's friends warned him not to go to Jerusalem because he was going to be persecuted, his determination to proclaim the gospel kept him going, even in the face of persecution. And we saw in Paul's trial that he maintained his focus on testifying as he saw himself not as a defendant, but as a witness to testify even while he was on trial. I would remind you of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. May we have a desire for more people to share in the blessings of the gospel. And may we be willing to do anything for the sake of getting them the gospel. And may we be willing to give up anything that stands in the way of more people sharing in the blessings of the gospel. May our decisions be guided by asking the question, will this help the proclamation of the gospel or hinder the proclamation of the gospel? Uh, This can be a guide for us individually. How can I treat this person in such a way that it will help me point them to the truth of the gospel? How can I avoid words and actions that might contradict the gospel I proclaim or make it harder in the future to proclaim the gospel to this person? How can I not avoid pain or loss, but how can I advance the gospel even if it costs me? It can be a guide for us individually, but it can also be a guide for us as a church. How can we make decisions 
that point people to Jesus? How can we ensure that what we're known for is not us, but what we're known for is the truth of the gospel? Proclaiming the gospel must be a guiding focus. So as God continues to write his story, may we enter in to this story by remembering that the Father authored an unstoppable plan and nothing will hinder him from accomplishing his will. May we remember that Jesus presently lives, reigns, and works. He is active, he is saving, and he is present with us in the story. May we remember that the Holy Spirit gives us power to do God's will and that Jesus has not asked us to do anything that he has not given us the power to do. May we remember that the word will triumph when the word is central. God honors the church that honors his word. Salvation can transform anyone. Uh, No one is saved by the gospel who is not also transformed by the gospel, and anyone can be transformed by the gospel. May we remember that the local church is essential to the mission. The local church is Jesus' chosen vehicle to get the gospel to the nations and multiply disciples. And proclaiming the gospel must be a guiding focus. May we do all for the sake of the gospel. So may these truths continue to shape our church as we seek to carry out God's mission. May we never be the same. Our journey through Acts may be over, but the story continues. May our church submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus who sits on the throne of heaven and continue to enter into the story that God is still writing. Let's pray together. Father, you have authored an unstoppable plan. You've already written the end of the story. And Lord, you invite us to enter in as you sovereignly, providentially orchestrate all things for the end that you are accomplishing. The end of you receiving glory. The end of your glory spreading throughout the world. As you fill the earth with people who know you and are blessed by you and reflect you. Lord, I thank you that you invite us to be a part of that mission that you are accomplishing. Lord, I pray that we would see your invitation and, Lord, that we would enter in. Lord, that we would, as a church, remember what you're doing, that we would keep the word central. Uh, Lord, that we would keep the word central to building ourselves up as a church, that we would keep the word central in our proclamation of the gospel. Uh, Lord, may we not get distracted. May we not get uh, deterred. Lord, may we focus on what you are doing in us and through us, all for your glory. We love you and praise you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together. Let's respond.